remember when you were in your teens, Vance, and your mama or your mama, somebody in your family, maybe all of them, your aunts told you, hey, you're such a fine young boy, you're so handsome, all that kind of thing. Good things that a child generally needs to, needs to hear. And then you get older and you find out that's not true, right? That's, that's not true. I'm Christina Hudson Kohler, an egg processing manager living in Syracuse, New York, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Well, Chris Bennett returns. This is one of my favorite guests I've ever had. If you don't know who Chris Bennett is, he is an agricultural reporter, and he is perhaps the greatest storyteller that I have ever met. He is one of those guys that is seeking out the details of a story, and he is just a hell of a lot of fun. You know, you get on a call with him and you can see the energy that he has and the passion for what he's doing, and you can't help but feel the sense of excitement about the world. So I am really excited that you're here for this. In the beginning of the interview, we talk a little bit about the As the Crow Flies book club. This is something that we do. It's open to the public, and we're reading two books right now. We're reading one book for the month of October, which is The Hobbit, which if you've never read this book, I never had, it's a fun read. And it's one of those that you can share with your family, or it might be something that you've read before, but you want to try it out again. So we're reading The Hobbit for the month of October, but we've started a much longer book called The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is the story written by T.E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia. And we've given ourselves a little bit more time to read that book. So that'll be December's book of the month, but we wanted to make sure we had enough time to read this big, thick tome of a book. And they're both fascinating reads. They're the, written so well that it's not difficult to open up the pages and just start getting absorbed into the story. But it's one of those things that if you don't have a group of people around you to do, you might not pick them up. So if you're interested in doing that, getting a part of the book club, the book club it happens on the last Sunday of the month at 7.30. And if you'd like to learn more, you can always send me a note at vance at articulate.ventures. You can just send me an email and I will get you hooked up. Or you can join the Articulate Ventures Network, which is one of the places where most of the people in the group show up for book club, but they also participate in other activities. You don't have to be a member of the network to join it, but it also gives you a link directly. So if you're interested in learning more about the network, go to network.articulate.ventures. I hope to see you there and Enjoy this interview with Chris Bennett, one of my favorite guests that they can be. Talk to you later. Chris Bennett, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Vance. Good morning, man. Hey, it's a blessing to be here. I'm, I'm just excited to talk to you. So uh, you are a journalist for anybody that didn't catch our first episode. And the last time we spoke, it was a wild ride. In fact, of all the interviews I've ever done, I've never gone back and listened to the same episode so many times as I did with yours, because I just kept thinking like, man, this guy knows how to highlight the details that matter in a story. So I'm really excited that you're back. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I'm about quarter journalist but i'm i'm ready to go uh 12 rounds with you vance <laughs> I, they, they hit the bell man come on so um you know i've got a uh, book club this uh, podcast we every once a month we do a book club and uh we the concept is doing what we call lindy books and what it means is 
we want to do books that have stood some test of time because the likelihood that a book will be around in the future is directly proportional to how long it's been around in the past. And uh, so we usually read one book a month and then we have one long-term book that we that takes longer to read so you're not in such a rush. So as soon as you finish the, finish the monthly book, then you go towards that longer one. And the longer one this month is T.E. Lawrence's The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And uh, before we got started today, you had told me you've actually read that book and I'm like 25 pages in. So I'm super stoked to talk with you about a book that I've yet to read. Hey, Vance, that book was far above my intellect. I read it when I was younger, uh, about half as smart as I am now, which is not saying much. But if there's an impressive fella in history, surely it's uh, Lawrence. And... uh, the movie itself, you know, the movie David Lean made in the 1960s which, which, with the incredible cinematography. If anybody's never seen the blues, the skies that he was able to create on films, in, incredible. But that, that doesn't really tell much about the guy himself. Uh, T.E. Lawrence, as you, you know, man, a man full of mystery, a man that uh, for every three things out of his mouth, maybe two of them were true, you never really knew. But interesting character. You mentioned in the intro details, details, and that's what draws us in, man. Uh, details pull us in. You give me some details I can sink my teeth into, Vance. I will remember what you say, and I will hang on your words. When you start talking boilerplate, generic, my mind, it tends to drift. Yeah, and that's actually probably the biggest complaint that people have about uh, journalists is that they get the details wrong, right? Like they're telling some story and then the the way that they fill in to try and make it interesting is that the details are slightly off. And those are the things where you're like, how could you have done this to me? That's not what I told you. (laughs) You're exactly right. You know, I think I had uh, somewhat of a uh, wake-up moment on details, Vance, maybe maybe 10, 12 years ago. I don't know the exact date. There was an article that came out in Texas Monthly. You can look this up online. Uh, you find it pretty fast by a guy named Skip Hollingsworth. Hollingsworth, Vance, for my money, is, is one of the finest writers in the, in, in the world. He wrote an article on a uh, fellow named John McClanrock. And uh, truly a tragic story, or maybe beyond tragic. McClanrock was a 17-year-old kid in 1973 playing football. And he had everything going for him. I think he was maybe 5'11", if I remember, 160, 165 pounds, kind of built for speed, very handsome guy, had his future before him. And he was injured on the football field one night in Dallas. Uh, He was a... Vance, I think what you'd call a wedge blocker on the kickoff team, and he ran out, and the fellow's knee caught his neck. Neck snapped. He collapsed on the ground. So bottom line was McClamrock, 17-year-old, was paralyzed from the neck down. He got out of the hospital, right, can't move. And it was so severe, his paralysis was, that he could not lift his head up. So in other words, he had to lay flat at all times and they took him home and he had a couple of brothers his parents and his mama I believe was working at a bank there in Dallas she quit she began to look over this young man 17 years old Vance 17 right there and uh, the story Vance will, will, will just tear you apart 
she, her name was Ann McClamrock, looked after this young man who was 17 years old until he was in his 50s, and he never moved from that bed. And she would wake up in the morning, uh, get dressed, put her perfume on, get cleaned up. She would go in there to where he was at in this room, and she would shave him. She would sponge bath him. She would uh, clean his urine bag. She would wipe his bottom as you would a baby. She would turn him to keep the bed sore from forming, and they were together trapped in this room. The father died of cancer. One of the brothers died of cancer. One of the other brothers also got cancer. She and the boy, John Clamrock, were together. And the thing that stuck in my head, Vance, pierced my heart, was that in her bedroom at night, on her bedstand, she kept a card, a little tiny prayer card. And it was a card of thanks. It was a card of faith. And she would read and she would pray on this card every night before she went to bed. The next morning she would wake up and go tend to her son. And in his room, he was trapped in 1973, shag carpet, his football pictures on the wall. And the time rolled on. She got into her 70s. She got into her 80s. Young man was no longer young. He was 50 years old in this bed. You can imagine his skin. He hasn't seen sunlight in you know, 30, 35 years, very white skin, very clear. And she was holding out, man. She was holding out for him. I'm going to try and survive longer than my son. And she died at 89, eight weeks after the young man finally died. He died, I think, at 51. But she maintained the prayer vigil alone in this house, in her bedroom, him in the other room, and I, 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 I that, that, the, the details of the prayer card, the details of her tending to him every day, the details of the room, truly, truly, if history is taken in snapshots, then that was a frozen moment in time. And I, when I read Hollingsworth article, Vance, it, it, it told me, hey, you know, don't, don't try and shortchange any reader that, you might come across, uh, treat them right, and that is provide them with the details to humanize things. Sorry for my long-winded answer there, but go look it up if you get a chance, man. It's called Steel Life, Texas Monthly, Skip Hollingsworth. I guarantee it'll make you choke up a little bit. So, I mean, that actually brings up a, an interesting point. Like, if uh, people are just listening to this, they may not know, you know, you can tell from your southern draw, like, you're a country boy. You're wearing a hunter's vest right now. You know, you've got this, uh, you're in agriculture, but you are taken by the details at a level of um, openness or, and I don't want to call it sentimentality because I don't, I don't think it's wrought with, uh, um, oh, I want to feel sadness or, oh, I want to feel these, but, but you really are uh, a person that can be pulled in these different emotional ways like is this just your natural state were you a sensitive kid growing up in a in a rugged place like how did you become who you are i don't think so vance i think it's a matter of knowing uh, recognizing just the limitations of your own intellect you know if, if i go back into my uh teens remember when you were in your teens vance and your mamaw 
or your mama, somebody in your family, maybe all of them, your aunts told you, hey, you're such a fine young boy, you're so handsome, all that kind of thing. Good things that a child generally needs to, needs to hear. And then you get older and you find out that's not true, right? That's, that's not true. And then you uh, maybe have confidence in your own intellect when you're 18, when you're 25, and then that fails as well. And you realize you're about as quarter as smart as you thought you were. So once you peel all that away, man, you peel away the intellect, you're just left with me and you talking. And when you get down to bare bones details, people, whether they want to admit it or not, they want to hear the blood, sweat, and tears because we're all the same. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're in China, Afghanistan, Japan, South America, right here. Man, you want to hear the uh, blood, sweat, and tears. And, and if, if you get off your high horse and feed people those details that they want to hear, they can sink their teeth into, then you can really find some good common, good common ground, man. Yeah, I was struck by uh, yesterday, I watched just a little bit of the Supreme Court hearings, and I don't normally follow this kind of stuff. I, I, don't, I think a lot of it's political theater. But one of the things that I'm struck by from what you're saying is the woman that is getting grilled is able to recall details of cases that are way beyond any level of, of uh, you know, caring about tiny details that I could ever have. And yet what I really was deeply interested in was the fact that she was raising six kids. And I'm, I'm sitting there being like, one is all I can barely wrap my arms around. And this woman who has this incredible intellect, but the, the, to your point of the connection with the blood, sweat, and tears, I'm thinking like, how did this woman, how does this woman not look ragged and, and, uh, and torn up because she's caring for kids and going through this exceptional process of becoming a Supreme Court judge? Right, Vance, essentially, uh, she had no notes. And the Democrats and Republicans both that are asking her all these questions have reams of material with them. And she's, it appeared at least, I mean, I don't know this, but it appeared that she was shooting from the hip. And uh, you talk about impressive, regardless of which part, which side of the aisle you're on, when someone can do that and just kind of riff like that, I guess legally riff, whew, you got to tip your hat, man. Got yeah, to. no doubt. Like no matter which side of the political aisle you're on, that woman had like a level of poise and, and an intellect that you say like, you know, I can't touch that. Like I don't, I don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, uh, Vance, the, the, She's supreme. Well, she's potential Supreme Court justice, far removed from anything I could identify with. But you're right. When someone has a a, a parcel of kids and seems to talk like a normal human being, we can kind of identify with them, or at least we think think we can. I, I think if you if you took at uh, politics and 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 people. One of the guys that stands out to me in history, one of the guys that I was able always to kind of latch on to his coattails was Theodore Roosevelt. And one of the reasons was that uh, in one of the seminal works on Roosevelt, I think it was Edmund Morris that wrote it. Don't, don't quote me on that. But anyway, in one of the seminal works on Roosevelt, 
if it is Morris, he delves into the tragedy in Roosevelt's life. And uh, the, one of the big marker points was when he was, I think, serving in the New York, was it New York legislature? When he was up there serving, his wife, new bride, they had one young child, and his mother took ill at the same time. So he had to book it home. You can imagine uh, rail, carriage, and so on, trying to, get, trying to get back to this house. And he got home in the middle of the night. Big Roosevelt house, big fancy house. And he doesn't realize yet the severity. He knows it's bad. And if I remember right, his uh, wife was upstairs dying. His mother's downstairs dying. That night, they both died. And I think the mama died first, and the wife died later on. I might have that in reverse. But what caught me was that after both of them died, Roosevelt, the man who would become legendary U.S. president, opened his diary. And in the diary for that day, he wrote something to the effect of, the light has gone out of my life. And he took a big X, and he X'd the page. And that was his entry on the day that they died. And I, I, I thought, okay, that's all, that's, that's all I need to know, man. That's all I need to know. The man X's it out. The light has gone out of my life. So he's now removed himself from the lofty heights of politics. He's just like you and me, Vance. Just like you and me. Interesting. Very interesting. Do you, uh, do you keep a journal or a diary? I don't, Vance. I keep a, uh, I keep a book that I write in, in pencil, and it contains quotes that affect me, influence me somehow, some way, something I feed off of. And um, maybe by the, if, if, if the Lord takes me out here at 80, maybe it'll be filled someday. But I do write in there. And then I, I reference it a lot, read it, and try and try and learn. So if I'm reading a book, Vance, if I'm reading a book, or or if uh, I hear somebody say something that truly, you know, kicks me in the right spot, I'll write it down, man. Write it down. When you think about, uh, you know, like you just talked about. Uh, a guy whose wife and mother died. And then you said, you know, if I kick off, I'm going to die. Like, do you think about what you're leaving behind for your kids? Because you've written prolifically, you, you write these quotes down. What do you hope your kids find after you're gone? Yeah, I, I, I think so, Vance. I think we all think about that. And uh, I'm, I'm basically 50 years old. So I assume the way, that, the way life rolls that, those kind of thoughts become heavier and heavier as time goes by. I have a 16-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son, and I'm consumed by them. I, I mean that in a, in a good way. My thoughts are always to them. And as you said, what what is it that you leave behind? What legacy do you leave behind? What echoes? And uh, I, I suppose talk is very cheap. I'd like to think that if I kicked off here today, Vance, that I would have left them a moral framework to guide them. I would hope that uh, my actions 
would carry through with them. Obviously, words are cheap. We can say anything, but I, I know they'll model themselves after me for the good or the bad. And those kind of thoughts, I, I think, are part of any daddy, uh, mama. That's hopefully, hopefully the way we think, man. So I, I've got a, I've got a wife. I have two kids. That's it. That's all I need. I, I feel like I'm the richest man in the world. I'm also a, a U.S. citizen. And uh, I've got a job writing about farm and agriculture. So if you look at my bank account, I'm just another person. But the reality is um, I'm, I'm very blessed, man, very blessed. You know, the fact that I now have a daughter gives me a, a whole different plane through which to see the world. And one of the things that I constantly say, and people give me these weird looks when I say it, but it is – Man, I really, really hope that my daughter does not fall in love with the guy <laughs> I was. You know, I, I became hey, a better person, right? But, like, my greatest fear is that my daughter would fall in love with somebody that was 25-year-old Vance, right, who was, right. who was uh, you know, like, that, that, who would break her heart, not even blink. Just wouldn't yeah, even think yeah. about it. Right. That's a profound statement, Vance. It's, uh, it's, it's brutal upon yourself, but it's honest. And I feel the exact same way. Uh, you know, I, I honestly, I, I feel sorry for uh, the fellow that marries my daughter. Because initially, <laughs> right, initially, I will come down with a hammer. I, that's just who I am. And I think most guys are like that if they will admit it. But uh, I, I appreciate what you said because I'm right there with you. Well, and one of my good friends, Travis Liebig, said something that was uh, brutal but true. And it was basically like, well, then you have to be the sort of man that you want her to fall in love with. And it can't be an act. Because if it's an act, then she'll fall in love with somebody that is an act of somebody that wants to be the, the type of man that you want her to fall in love with. And you're like, oh, my God, you're right. Like, now you're living in some context, which is... I actually have to be the thing that I want to say, because I think, you know, if you think back, I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, the lessons that I reject the most from my parents are when they said one thing and did another, but the ones that my parents actually lived it out, those are the ones that are burrowed deep in my mind. You got that right. I, I appreciate all the discipline I got from, from my parents. Uh, I think I've said it before, Vance, you know, my, my parenting skills are pretty poor but the thing <laughs> i've succeeded in doing the thing I've, I've i've been diligent about is to learn from every single mistake when my little girl and my little boy were four and five and i did the wrong thing pick it up learn don't make that mistake again because hey we're all gonna fall and fail over and over and over but that's not a reason to make the mistake twice so once again hey uh, get off your high horse man and and uh, figure it out <laughs> what is the, what is the life of a of a writer like? You know, are you waking up in the morning and you already know exactly what stories you're out, headed out to go find, or how does this work for you? Yes, sir, Vance. Uh, right now, if you, if you just ask me, hey, Chris, can you write down uh, 10, 15 stories that you're working on? I, I can do that real easy and real fast, but the truth is, Certainly, I can't work on 10, 15 stories at one time. So you have this list, and you're adding sources to it. You're, you're trying to uh, get the ducks in a row. 
And Vance, I, I'm going to try, right? I'm, I'm going to do my darndest, man, to, to pump out one solid story a, a week. And so if, if you're really trying to produce one content story a week and you're trying to use three, four sources per story, that depends. It might be a couple of sources. It might be, you know, 10 sources. But you've got to keep moving the ball constantly. Keep moving the ball. So my computer just jumped on me. I, I fixed that. But anyhow, uh, Vance, you've got to keep your uh, ear to the ground because you I, – I, I don't want to cast – negative light on anybody it's not not my intention but there are uh myriad stories out there informing waiting to be told the problem is that on average most people don't want to sink their teeth into those stories and go after them because it's very very difficult and plus you, certainly everybody has a, a quota to fill as, as well so um, if you presented me with a story right now, Vance, and you said, hey, there's a farm in Illinois. This couple experienced a tragedy or they experienced a bounty. Uh, you should do that story. Hey, man, I'm all about it, Vance, but can I get in the door? So it takes a lot of time. So I'll, let me go right back to the beginning of my answer. I got 10, 15 stories I'm working on. If I rattled off the list, Vance, I think that you would find them of interest or significance. The problem is getting the ducks in a row. So maybe in a year from now, maybe those 10, 15 will be finished. Maybe not. So your writing is different than just sitting down and doing creative writing because you, you have to actually use facts and, and sources and tell a story. But do you have to face the same problems of a muse, like where you have to have some creative spark hit you or that you hit writer's block in the way that a creative writer does? I, I don't know, Vance, but I, I, I definitely, uh, I don't know what chemical it is. I don't know what drug inside the body. If I get keyed up on a story and I know that it's good, uh, you remember when you were in either in T-ball or baseball and, and you swung the bat and the ball hit the fat part and you felt it in your core and it felt good? didn't matter where the ball was going. You knew it jumped off the bat. That same feeling happens sometimes when you're writing a story and you get charged up and you can feel some kind of drug. I don't know if it's endorphin. I don't know what's going on, but it's very difficult to sleep. So when you, you don't want to sleep, you want to wake up and you want to finish that story. And, and there's obviously if you're doing something, a boring story, then the, the, the feeling is the opposite. It's the last thing you want to do is tackle that. But something chemically, at least in, in my weak brain, is definitely going on. So that part is, is very exciting. I, you know, the, uh, there, there was a story, I think you, you know about it, Vance, of a guy named Robert Carl Stokes in North Carolina, one of the biggest crop insurance fraud stories really of all time. And that was $100 million drop in the bucket. In other words, what was stolen was probably 10 times that and possibly much more. The details in that uh, got me so charged up trying to 
put the pieces together that once again you, you get that level of excitement that's uh, difficult to describe and maybe Vance is dealing with human nature. You're seeing all these crazy moving parts like you're watching a Coen Brothers film and, and you're seeing people's behavior that is absolutely appalling or it's it's wonderful and uh, everything in between. And you, you cast yourself in the middle of that and you ask yourself, how would I be behaving? It's kind of like watching or reading Lonesome Dove and you have all this cast of characters thrown at you and you can't help but say, where do I where do I fit in? And the answer, Vance, is it's not always uh, it's not always laudatory, man. It's not always good because you realize, oh Lord, I'm glad I didn't get caught up in that because I'd be one of the guys going to the pen or something like that. Yeah, man. That actually, when you are able to read the book and say, I'm not just the hero that's on the successful side of the journey. Yeah. Like I could actually have been the villain in this story. <laughs> It opens up a whole different aspect of the way you read something. And like, I think I could go back and read books that I read when I was younger and I didn't have that mindset, right? Because you always want to place yourself in the empathetic position of overcoming, beating the dragon, whatever. But if you put yourself on the side of a villain that really took an ideal and just went too far, you'd be like, that, that could be me. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, when we were kids, Vance, when we were kids, you heard or you watched about the James gang, for example. It didn't matter how many people they killed or what have you. You, you had this creeping feeling on your shoulder of, well, I'd, I'd like to row with Jesse a little bit. You know, I, I, I can handle that. And you see it translated when you get older and you watch a film or read a book about a jewel thief hits the museum and goes through all these machinations and, and comes away with, I don't know, twenty million dollars in jewels, steals, and there is a part of us as humans we look at that and go, "Dang, I, I like that fella." You know, I appreciate that. So it's always there, man. It's always there, sitting on your shoulder. We, we, we. Well, that's like Don Draper in Mad Men <laughs> or or Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, right? Like. If you're sitting there telling your wife, hey, I want to go be Gordon Gecko or Don Draper, they'd be like, no way. But in the back of your mind, you're like, all those things that they have, this power, this uh, you know, control, this gravitas, wouldn't you love to have that? Because I would be good enough to use it for good and not evil. That's a great, that's the great point. And I, I think that's why uh, the Lord made sure I'm not a rich man, wealthy man, <laughs> or nothing like that, because I... I know myself, Vance. I know myself, and I, I, I can imagine which way my life would have gone. Let me, let me tell you something, man. When you think about um, modern-day athletes or uh, rock stars, and you think about the adulation that those uh, fellows get, at least the athletes, a lot of them get that adulation from the time they're 13, 14 years old. You just put yourself into that situation, and you see how it might have corrupted your soul. And I'm always very impressed and actually astounded by the ones who come out good and end up with a balanced life because again to give me that sort of praise and attention at that young age and have it carry on through uh, I, I i don't have the core to have have managed that in my life i would have been some sort of a failure moral degenerate if you want to call it like that 
Yeah, I went to school with a guy named Ben Zobrist. And when we were growing up, he was uh, always the best athlete out of all of us. But he was like a little guy. Nobody expected him to become a pro athlete that would then help the Cubs win the World Series. But when people find out that I went to school with Ben Zobrist, they get really excited. And he's one of those people that I'm like, there is no one that I want to have seen succeed more than that guy because he was just a good person. And when I've seen the things that go on with him in public, he is exactly the good person in in public life that he is in real life. And I think one of the reasons I admire him so much is there is literally no chance I would have been that. There, you know, Maybe I could have, after burning my life to the ground several times, have finally staggered my way to not being you know, evil. But but I definitely think if I had been a rock star, if I had been a superstar athlete, the seduction of uh, grabbing all everything that I could right now would have been far, far too great for me. You know, Vance, it reminds me of that quote. I don't know who said it, but it's something to the effect of if you want to judge the character of a person, right, uh, the, the true measure of character is is how – someone treats people who mean nothing to them. If you told me, hey, I treat my family good, I treat my uh, co-workers good, I treat my boss good, it doesn't really mean that much to me. Those are all good things, and you should, but it doesn't reveal much about that person. If I can find out how you treat the person who greets others at Walmart or who's cleaning the bathroom at Taco Bell, if I can find out how you treat those kind of people, that's when your character is uh, it's revealed. It's interesting. So speaking of character, uh, you recently came out with a story on that giant insurance fraud that, that happened. What leads a person to believe that they can go and uh, defraud an insurance company to the tunes of you know hundred million dollars? Vance, um, the, the fellow's name was Robert Carl Stokes. He's now passed on, but in the early two thousands, it appears it began with him. And I don't know the trigger. I don't know the background in his life might be for an interesting film but he was in north carolina he was in wilson north carolina and tobacco how's that vance i know my it just keeps rubbing up against your face and you all your uh, giant whiskers there There you go (laughs) (laughs) so uh he was in tobacco country in north carolina and 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 tobacco has a long history of crop insurance fraud It, it just does and what he had done is very, very, very fascinating. Uh, there had been many, invo- many involved in crop insurance fraud with tobacco. He simply was better than the others. <laughs> more, uh, he was a bit more crooked than the other guys. He had, he had foresight, extreme foresight. He was known as a good old boy. He worked out of a little uh, insurance house, normal-looking place. Everything on the surface looked normal. But what he was doing, Vance, let's say you wanted to grow a set amount of tobacco. You had these fields, you were going to grow tobacco. And your crop insurance guaranteed you that you'd be paid a certain amount up to maybe 2,000 pounds. What you would do, Vance, right, with Stokes, is you would grow, let's say you produced 2,500 pounds. And you would report that you'd grown a thousand pounds. 
So your crop insurance would guarantee you payment for the missing at least 1,000 pounds. Then there's a missing 500 pounds. I know those numbers are hard to figure out. So you're guaranteed payment on 2,000 pounds of tobacco. You report 1,000 pounds. You actually grew 2,500 pounds. So you get your normal payment, right? Farming payment on 1,000 pounds. You sell it. You get your crop insurance, right, fake, on the other 1,000 pounds. Meanwhile, you got 1,500 pounds of tobacco hidden on the back 40 in a barn somewhere that you had no problems harvesting. So in other words, you, you cheat on 1,000 pounds of tobacco. Then you take the other 500 pounds and you move it into the illegal market, black market. What was interesting about this case, morbidly interesting, was that it involved all levels of the tobacco pie. You often hear that, that cotton changes hands 10, 11 times from the field to your pair of blue jeans. I don't know if that's true, but you often hear that. Well, with tobacco, uh, there's a lot of layers to that cake as well. And there were outrageous amounts of people involved at each level. And an investigator named Don Doles, a fella out of Georgia, got involved. He was put on to this Robert Carl Stokes. And he went up there. He didn't just march into town. He set up a six-year sting. And they got an informant named Danny Deaton. Danny Denton, excuse me. And Denton was able to finger this Robert Carl Stokes because Stokes was building a house. It was a 6,000-square-foot pad. And he was paying Denton out of a safe in his office <laughs> that was packed with money from this crop insurance fraud. And so uh, Denton and, and, and Doles teamed up, but Doles couldn't get Denton to actually go in and do anything undercover. I think Denton had a personal tragedy in his life, Vance, and when he did, he flipped on this Robert Carl Stokes. Bottom line, right, bottom line was that when they went in and busted Robert Carl Stokes and his cohort of followers, they ended up getting like $100 million in fines and restitution, which, according to Don Doles and others, was truly, truly a, a drop in the bucket. So while it makes agriculture and farmers look bad, the truth is that those thieves – are stealing from their fellow farmers, and in the end, it hurts agriculture. So it's better to open the wound and treat it so that this kind of thing doesn't continue to happen down the road. Crop insurance fraud is, 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 is a human thing. You're always going to have guys doing it, but the level of the Stokes case was outrageous. It's beyond outrageous. I, what do, you, how do you, what, do you, what do you do with black market tobacco? Who do you sell black market tobacco to? Yeah, Vance, exactly. Who in the world, right, would buy black market tobacco except the companies whose names you and I already know? So that's how, that's how deep it went. This was not being sold on the streets of Hong Kong, right? <laughs> they weren't moving it into Thailand. They were, they were dealing this stuff right on the back lots of the companies that you know well. So from your, your farmer in the field all the way up to the big company names, you had to have people in the know involved. Outrageous. 
how do you keep yourself from becoming cynical? Because you, you have to look at the underbelly of the world. Like I could go, as long as I don't pick up a newspaper, I don't see this stuff. Uh, Vance, I think once again, it goes back to my own nature. I think it goes back to your nature, all of ours. And if we're honest, we're the, we're the same people. And uh, we've just got choices, man. You come to Forks in the road every day. After you and I finish with our conversation, you're going to have options throughout the day. And uh, if, if you want to, if you want to go the easy way, then you can. And I, I'm always tempted. You know, you think, right, or I thought when I was 18 that by the time I was 50 years old, I would have my ducks in a row and I would be the stalwart, man that I want to be, and I would no longer have to deal with those forks in a row. Simply not the case. I'm sure I'll deal with them uh, until the day I die, because you can always, it's like, uh, uh, what was it, a token man in his, in Mortar. Man, you can always hear Mortar calling out, right? I want to put the ring on. Always want to put the ring on, and I'm sure I'll be like that till the, the day I pass on. Yeah, that's one of the things about childhood that you never really maybe wake up to. It's like all the adults you think have their life worked out. And then you get to a certain phase where you're like, hey, those adults over there that I thought had it worked out, <laughs> they didn't. And then you start realizing like, wait a second, nobody's got it worked out. You can just, you have your things as well together as you can have. And then you're just trying to keep moving it forward. But I, it's, hard, it's hard to conceptualize, right? Brother, it's like the story about the little boy and the little girl. Uh, they were on the playground. The little girl had a box of chocolates. The little boy had a box of marbles. And she's sitting there on the swing, opening those chocolates one at a time, eating them. Delectable. These are top, top of the line chocolates. And he looks over there from his box of marbles, and he walks over and says, Hey, uh, I'll trade you. I'll trade you straight up. I'll give you my box of marbles if you give me your box of chocolates. Or she looks at those marbles, and in the moment she decides, yes, I'll make that trade. He goes, I'll be right back. He runs off with his box of marbles, you know, goes back home with his box of marbles, takes out the best shooters, takes out his best marbles, hides them under his bed, and then runs back with the box, hands them to her, right? And she hands him the box of chocolates. The deal is made. She gets the marbles. He gets the chocolates. He takes the chocolates. He runs home, and he does exactly what you and I would do, Vance. He sits on his bed alone, and he begins to eat the box of chocolates one at a time, unwraps them. Oh, savory, just enjoying them. Finishes them all. And that night, he's torn, man, torn in his spirit. He's rolling back and forth in his bed, and he can't sleep. And he's consumed, he's consumed by one thought, one question. When I ran home and took the best shooters out of that box of marbles, did she take any of the chocolates out of that box? <laughs> right? That's the human nature in a capsule right there. Right? No matter what he has done, no matter the depths of depravity he has sunk to, he's still looks at the little girl and thinks, you're the bad one. What She's the you one done? that cheated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ain't that the truth, man? Like, and, and you find that uh, like with insurance fraud, like you see people all the time saying, well, I'm going to report this and see if my insurance company is going to let me get away with this. And if they let me get away yeah. with it, then I probably should. Or like, hey, we need to 
to to put this on somebody else and if they'll accept the weight then we'll get away with it and they're not sitting there being like uh, you know hatching terrible machinations where they can destroy <laughs> another person they're just thinking like i just want to have this burden shifted a little bit to another person and that's that's the that's the path to mordor as you were saying you got it man you got it the uh most of the time if somebody cheats once right, insurance company at all levels is really not going to go after them they're looking for repeat offenders right so the, the the idea that oh i'll just cheat once and that's it it never holds true so in other words vance if you cheated this year do i think you would be satisfied with your theft of one no 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 i know you coming back to the trough once again and so that's what happens uh that's what happens over and over. There was a uh, story, Vance, that I finished. I haven't even published it yet. But it, it, it revealed more to me about human nature maybe than I wanted to admit. It took place in the 1800s uh, in Georgia. And you talk about a story that an account that really grips you by the throat. Uh, there was a fine a finally raised woman named Jane Story Perryman was in Georgia and she was married to a fellow that was somebody and the two of them lived in this wonderful house three four thousand square uh, square feet two stories they had a plantation of several hundred acres and they had several children Oh, they had all the houses around the house. Uh, I can't remember, 10, 15 slaves. I think we would be talking at this point, fans, in the 1820s, 30s, 40s. And they'd come from one side of Georgia and moved to the other. Again, the lady's name was Jane Story Perryman. So they had given up, she had given up tremendous amounts. She'd lived close to Augusta, uh, fine society. They'd moved to the other side of Georgia, to the rough western part. Essentially, it was frontier. And he had this farm, and he used it as a means to preach. In other words, he started churches. So he farmed in order to preach. And by the, by the 1840s, uh, a lot of people in Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi, were moving to Texas. And he got a be in his bonnet and he decided he wanted to move to texas as well he was going to start churches out there so he went to jane one day and said hey we're going to move to texas so get ready and this was you know back in the day vance when 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 the, when the guy said what was going to happen with the family the woman hopped to it at least in public that was always the setup so she bucked him and she refused to go, and he continued on with the plans. And you can imagine the logistics, Vance, of moving a family from Georgia to Texas, right? A lot of the time, you went just like you did everywhere else in a convoy, caravan, whatever you want to call it, cavalcade, whatever word. But anyhow, she told him, I'm not going. And she's in this wonderful house, wonderful house, finally made by him for her 20 years prior. She's watched her kids grow up. She has some grandkids now. And the day came to move. It was in November. 
and he had the wagons outside. They had the wagons packed. The house at this point was essentially empty. And you can imagine, Vance, a house in the 1840s that's empty, ornately made. You can imagine the echoes, and she's inside, and she won't come out of the house. She's in her dress with multiple layers and frills. She's upstairs in her bedroom, and she won't come out. And she's sitting in a chair. He sends a servant up to her. The servant says, you know, Miss Jane, it's time to go. Your husband says it's time to go. And she looks out the window of her bedroom that looks upon a wonderful garden crafted by her and then out to the rolling hills of the county with more than likely would be partially picked cotton fields, partially picked because you picked in waves back then by hand. And uh, she says, my Texas is here. My Texas is here. I'm not, I'm not going. So the servant goes back downstairs and tells her husband, James, she says she's not going. And you can imagine, Vance, he's looking up at the windows, looking up at the top story. You can imagine the tension. And a, a, a shot rings out. A shot rings out loud. And you can imagine it booming, right? The report booms out of the house. The house is empty. And, of course, they all rush in upstairs, and they find her in a pool of blood on the ground. And she has somehow managed to secret away a pistol. And she's pulled out this pistol and, and essentially self-slaughter. She's committed suicide right there, refusing to go. So to add poignancy upon poignancy, he takes her body and buries her 50 feet from the place where she dropped. And he buries her out there in the garden. And he also unloads the wagons and never goes to Texas. And... Uh, the tragedy of the whole affair is something that weighed heavy on me. I'm, I'm sure it would weigh heavy on anybody who read about it. But the idea that she would endure frontier, give up everything that she had, and then be asked once again to go to Texas and do all of this again, and Texas at the time, Vance, was extreme frontier, right? I mean, we're literally talking about headlines in the newspapers in the 1840s of, uh, of, of Comanche massacres, of kids being kidnapped. All of that was going on. She would have known this. So she would have known, hey, if I go to Texas, I'm headed toward frontier hell, and it's been bad enough where I'm at. So rather than go... She uh, went ahead and, 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 and killed herself. I, according to uh, oral tradition, according to oral tradition, the, the blood, the spot where she killed herself, the blood could still be seen on those planks, those hardwood planks, uh, 100 years later. If, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm right, Vance, back then, there was no varnish, right? There was no covering on a, on a on hardwood floor. It was bare, truly bare. So uh, anyway, there's a million more details to that story about Jane Story Perryman packed in there, but those kind of things speak like you, to you, us. They speak. Yeah, they really do because you're, I'm sitting here thinking like, uh, you know, they both decided that they were going to go in their direction as hard as they could and eventually something had to break, 
right? Either he was going to leave her completely, which I, it sounds like she didn't want to tolerate that either. And I mean, like, then when you hear that she killed herself, you think, well, what was it? Was she afraid? Did he not listen to something that she was afraid of? And, and then you, you're right. You're, if you're listening to this story properly, at least I think is you're like, when have I put my, put me and another person at such a level of tension where something yeah. could snap like that? Because there's no chance that he was sitting outside being like, yeah, maybe she'll kill herself. Like right. is, is, he, he didn't know that he had gotten that, that tension so tight. Again, you know, we get history and snapshots. So you don't know if she was dealing with melancholy. You don't know who was really to blame. And one of the mistakes that we make or I make, is uh, constantly judging people in history, looking back 100 years ago, adding motives to what they did. Sometimes you just, you gotta let the story tell itself and, and take what you, take away what you can. The, what's, what is indisputable in the story, and, and again, so tragic, she was buried out there in the yard. She was buried by herself. No one had ever been buried out there and no one would ever be buried out there. In other words, she was alone, and she remains alone today. The house uh, fell in. But you can go there today, Vance, and her grave, her slab is there. That tells me something, to, something about the response by her husband and, and children right there. Mm, mm, you know... Mm. Oftentimes, I think reporters are the first tellers of history, and you've got to have a front row seat for the what's going on in the world right now, where people are saying, hey, these people that we used to have and we put up statues of, or we used to celebrate them and give them a day, now we don't want to do that anymore. From the eyes of a reporter, how do you see this? Uh, I see it as a travesty, Vance. It's, a, um, it's an outrage. And to think that someone would tear down a statue, simply, maybe you just simply disagree with their stance in history on a variety of topics, is uh, truly cowardice at its highest level. Because you, you know, man, so well that the people we would build statues of today after a hundred years goes by, you just tear them down as well. When you tear down a statue, you're really tearing down yourself, and you do so. You do so out of ignorance. When you see people tear down Lincoln, or or Jefferson, or Roosevelt, or Stonewall Jackson, uh, Robert E. Lee, it's there's simply no excuse for it, and if you'll simply delve into their lives, right, whether it's Lincoln or Lee or Stonewall Jackson, you find out that there's extreme levels of nuance. They're just like you and me. They were swept along by all sorts of things in society. And in particular, this country, right, this country, where we have this much opportunity and wonderful history, this is not a matter of tearing down a statue of Lavrenti Berea or Joseph Stalin, you know, or Lenin. We're not in Slovakia. You know, we're not in Romania. Communism just didn't fall in the 1990s and we're trying to drag down statues of people. No, these are 
the statues coming down now in the United States, or that have been over the last few months, these are the markers of our lives. And uh, I, I, I feel sorry in a way for the people that do those kind of things because they are taking an ankle or taking a hammer to their own ankles and they don't even realize it. You know, I, uh, I have a buddy named Jeremy Lakash. He's been an, a guest on this podcast and he started a YouTube channel called History in Context. And I, when he first started doing it, I was like, you know, I, I, I think it's be nice to have a history channel, but I don't really know what you mean. And he was like, no, I'm going to take the primary sources of these people that we think we know and these events that we think we've heard before. I'm just going to read you what they've said. And so he did this with Christopher Columbus. And I was three minutes into that video and I realized I only had a Walt Disney version of of Christopher Columbus you know like oh he hopped on he somebody gave him some money he hopped in some boats the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria he came over here he did some stuff and then he left I had no idea he's turned this into a seven-part series 30 minutes each about and you find out like how he was engaging with the native people how they traded with them how they learned how they got chased around the islands it's it's an amazing story. And so to your point about tearing down these statues, like if you get all the way done with reading several books about this character and then you decide, hey, I'm going to get another mob of people that also spent several months or years reading about this person and then we decide to tear down that statue, fine. But if you have only a Disneyland understanding of who these people are, all you're doing is the whims of somebody else's uh, desires. You're letting emotions sweep you up. Even if you're correct that this person did terrible things, you don't actually know that. You're just following what the mob told you to do. You're absolutely right. You know, uh, who was it? Uh, I'm going to say it was Edmund Burt Vance that said, these people, I'm paraphrasing here, these people can't handle freedom. They fashion their own fetters, essentially what he said. They create their own chains. And when you succumb to mob rule and you allow the mob to hold sway, right, you are on the road to hell. Uh, now, if you look back just to 1789 and that era with the French Revolution, and you see what happened with the Jacobines and the whole rest of those Man, I don't have any thugs. idea you're talking about Jacobines. What are the, you talking about? I'm talking about the French Revolution and the way that the mob ate its own. It, it, what you always see, and it's, it's proven again and again, Vance, is that history turns on itself. The mob turns on itself. The mob eats its own. It's just a matter of time. So, in other words, if you and I participate as a mob today right? we are signing our own death warrant because it's just a matter of time before the crowd turns um, on us you've often seen the the crazy psychology of canines of dogs you'll have a pack of 10 dogs and they'll be on another dog or they'll be on another animal on a coon what have you and suddenly in an instant right something happens something's triggered in there and the pack of dogs turns on one of their own, so the, the, the weaker of the lot. Same thing happens in, in, in society and history. And that's why, you know, whether, whether you're on the right or the left or wherever, beware the mob, I guess. 
Oh man, I, there's I I actually think like for my own self, the greatest fear I have is literally of a mob. And it I had a chance a couple of times to see the mob in action when I was living in Africa. And one of the experiences I had is if you see somebody there that's a thief and you point at them and you say, Mwezi, thief, then if other people start pointing and saying that too, they're going to grab that person and they're not going to hold the trial. They're going to kick and punch them to death. And wow. when you see that, the veneer that you have over how we are civilized and how um, you know safe we are is now stripped away. And I don't think the Africans are, are bad or, or any less civilized than us, other than the fact that they don't have a police force that can met out justice. And so justice is immediate. And uh, I think that one of the reasons that people in our culture right now are more comfortable with being a part of the mob is because they haven't seen what happens, the animalistic nature that comes, that once it begins, you can't stop it. There's no person on earth that can stand it. The only thing that can stop it is either that it burns out or that you bring so much force to bear on it that it has to dissipate. But either way, just allowing that mob to form is uh, so dangerous as to be a, a thing that we don't, in our modern language, have a way to describe it, I don't think. Right. I, I, I agree. You know, when, when we were kids, Vance, maybe in high school or younger, and, and they gave us a copy of William Golding's uh, Lord of the Flies uh, to, to read, the adventure part of the story took us in as young kids, and, and you enjoyed the idea that all these boys are, are on this island by themselves, and that by itself propels you into the story, but you get a little bit older, and you realize Oh, Lord, he's talking about partially about the mob and, and what happens with human psychology. And th th that's a classic example of uh, the, the degeneracy of the mob and, and what goes on. So, uh, I, I, I again, think it speaks to something that's, that's really important that like, we can end up taking for granted that justice is actually a slow process. And that, that, that the virtue that comes from it, you know, of course, yeah. when something bad happens, we want to see, you know, consequences immediately. But slowing everything down and making sure that a process is followed is what, is what allows you to uh, transcend that, that animal nature and, and apply wisdom to the situation. Which is why anytime you're talking about the justice system, we should all agree, let us do everything we can to ensure that the system is stable. Not that my side wins today, because eventually your side is going to win tomorrow. And if I set it up so the table is stacked, that's bad news over the long term. Big A man, Vance, big A man. You know, it's like the U.S. is a bird, and a bird needs two wings and balance to fly. So you need your Democrats, Republicans, right, left. And like you said, if the Republicans win here in November or the Democrats win in November, that's going to flip at some point. So if, if, if you don't like what happens and you go out and try and punch your neighbor in the head <laughs> or steal their sign, you know, steal their, their Trump sign or Biden sign, what have you, uh, you know, don't be surprised when the same thing happens to you down the road. But that's to me and you, and 
to the listeners, that's common sense. But we all know there's a segment of society, apparently a large segment of society in the United States, to which that is not common sense. And as to how that's happened, managed to creep into our society over the last 50 years, my Lord, uh, they'll be writing books on that a couple of hundred years from now. Tomes, no doubt, tomes. You know, I guess, Vance, it comes down in the end to how you behave, right? We'll go right back to your little girl, how you behave in front of your daughter, what example you leave for her. And there was a guy a few years ago named David Hyatt. He was out in, boy, my memory's rough on this, Vance. He was out in Oregon, and uh, he, he had a little farm, a lot of hay, I think some livestock. My computer's messing up. There we go. A lot of hay, livestock. He took it upon himself. His, his, his wife had a horse. The horse died, and he had to bury this horse. It was a beloved, beloved pet, part of the family, whatever description you want to use. The point was it was beloved. So it's quite a task to bury uh, a horse. You know, and if he, he wanted to do it right, maybe 10 feet deep, uh, eight feet long grave. Logistically, that's not so easy. So he, he, he began to realize that he had opportunity. And this David Hyatt guy bought himself a dually with the uh, company and equipment. And as a ministry, right, not as really a money-making venture, venture, but as a ministry, out there in Oregon, he decided that he would bury horses for people. Because most of the time, depends on where you're at in the U.S., but Vance, if, you know, if, if your horse dies, you, know, you, you can call a zoo. They'll come get your horse, feed it to the animals. Or you might be able to call the you know, refuse department. They'll drag your horse off, things like that. But if you love that horse, like for example, if a little girl had the horse from the time she was <laughs> 12, and that horse lived for 25 years, right? There's connections there. You don't want to really feed it to the lions. Right, it's like, <laughs> right, right. You, you want to bury it right. So he started doing this, man. Before he knew it, he had calls from all over the place. And he was going several hundred miles a time to get these horses. And he had all these uh, construction straps. He would go into these stalls wherever the horse dropped out in the field. And he would reverently collect these horses, put them in a box on the back of the truck, and take them back to his uh, own personal horse graveyard on his property, which was at the bottom of a canyon, huge, huge field. And before he knew it, he had a couple of thousand horses buried there. So he pre-dig pre -dig the graves, bring the horses in, gently as he possibly could deposit them into the holes, put some lime on top of the horses, cover the graves, and I think if I remember right, if I remember asking him, you know, what else went into the grave, and I, th I think he told me that sometimes the bridle will go in, depends on what the people request, and most of the time he kept the shoes, so he had all these shoes from these horses. But you can imagine, Vance, this huge, huge pasture filled with these grave sites of these horses. Uh, and again, this guy was charging something like, $250, $300 for the whole deal, which is a phenomenal price. 
because he's done it so reverently as a ministry. I was always, I was deeply, deeply, deeply impressed by him because I quickly recognized that he was a better man than me. I, I simply wouldn't uh, do that. I don't mean that to knock myself. I, I just recognized a man with, with a heart for serving others. And uh, name is David Hyatt. You can look him up on Google. As far as I know, Vance, he's still he's still burying horses. And when you first hear about it, it's just funny. And then when you look at the the nuances of what's going on with his service, you really tip your hat. Man, that I, so the whole time as you're telling this story, I was waiting for the the Chris Bennett like flip, like where all of a sudden <laughs> you know something crazy was going on with these horses. But to actually get to the end and say. No, that he was doing this and it was a kindness that he's doing. I mean, my wife, for example, her connection with pets is so deep that for her to know that it was being taken care of like that, Uh, that would mean so much to her. You're right. It is a, it's a form of ministry or a form of kindness. That's a, that's a profound uh, story. How'd you stumble upon him? Been too many years, Lance. That one I had to I just got to plead ignorance. Maybe I read about him or heard about him, but I can't, I can't remember it. It's, a lot of the time, you know, I always say, Vince, you know, I always say, hey, there's all these stories out there in farming waiting to be told. Well, there's even a bigger segment of stories involving animals in agriculture waiting to be told. And, and a couple of years ago, there was a guy out in, uh, in California. His name was Jordan Reed. I think he'd been raised in the South, maybe in Carolina. But anyway, he was out in California. And what he did, right, one of the things he did, he works in agriculture at all different layers, but he has this pack of fasts, right, little hunting dog. If, if it's, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what a fast is or looks like, it's spelled F-E-I-S-T. Go look them up on the net. They just look like trouble. They look like little devils. And Vance, he used this pack of fast, he still does, to seek out rats on people's farms. And he goes in, they hit these farms, they sometimes hit them for, you know, 10 rats, 20 rats, 100 rats, in a day, you know, in several hours. And uh, I was absolutely consumed by what he did. Uh, uh, and and the, the, you can imagine the blood. You can imagine the dirt. You can imagine the smells. You can imagine the absolute frenzy that takes place when these rats are scattered and these dogs move in, crush the bone, crushing all that kind of stuff. And I, it, it really hit me hard because I was blessed with a uh, little Jack Russell fast mix myself that I had for a long time, about ten years, and she was a phenom snake dog. And this dog would get on a cotton mouth and tear a cotton mouth to pieces like you've never seen. As if you've ever seen a dog work a cotton mouth, she would face up to the cotton mouth, right, which is a highly venomous snake, and then she would have to cut around to the back. So what she's doing is facing up on the cotton mouth, trying to get around to the back tail, and if she can get around and she hits that tail tries to shake one time, lets go, and darts back around to the face. So you've got like a mongoose dance going on. So I was always called <laughs> by her. She was bitten, you know, oh, Lord, man, you know, six, seven, eight times. I truly can't even count the amount of time. But once again, when you're there and the blood is going, 
the uh, smells are going. She, she, this dog Maggie got hold of a snake one time. My, my wife had come out with me. She wanted to uh, kind of watch Maggie do her thing. And my poor wife, Leslie, she was standing there and, and Maggie hit on a snake. We, I didn't see the snake. I didn't see it. I couldn't give my wife any warning. She hit on this snake. And this was, this was a non-venomous snake. My wife didn't know that. It was about, I don't know, five and a half feet long, very long snake. And she got hold of this snake and started to shake that thing right beside us, right beside the four-wheeler. And she flung blood all over <laughs> my wife. And you talk about lighting somebody up. Let me put it this way. She didn't come back out there again. Maggie <laughs> hit those snakes. Anyhow, anyhow, just one of those simple things of life, Vance, dog, snake, rat. Uh, that's getting right down to it, man. Enjoy. So uh, I, we got to wrap up here in just a second, but I want to ask you my, my favorite question, um, and that is the Peter Thiel paradox, which is what is one thing you think is true that almost nobody agrees with you on? Oh, man, that's a heck of a question. Give me about five seconds to spin that around in my head. One thing that uh, I think is true, no and nobody and, and barely anybody agrees with you. Now, the reason it's such an interesting question is because if you say something that people agree with at the beginning, then you've already right. failed. And so <laughs> you have to walk your way into a paper bag and then get your way out of it. Right, right, right. Man, I could, I could plead ignorance here, and I could say, Vance, that I, I can't think of anything. Or I could uh, be honest and uh, lay it on the line. I, here, here's what I think. I think uh, that myself, right, not talking about you, not talking about anybody in the audience, but myself, I know, I don't think this, I know I'm going to deal with 100 moral choices by the end of the day. I referred to that earlier as forks in the road. And it speaks to the uh, depravity of my nature, my fallen nature. I'll say this. I think that everybody out there deals with those same demons. And I think those demons are far stronger than what anybody wants to admit. In other words, the call to go down the wrong trail is always, always there. We all like to speak about the greatness of human nature and how people are generally good. I don't believe that. I don't believe it any further than I can throw it. So in other words, uh, if, if somebody tells me something that makes me, makes the hackles go up on the back of my neck, my inclination always, Vance, is to assume that that person is lying. And that's the way I tend. I, I, I lean toward uh, not necessarily looking for the bad, not necessarily looking for the good, but just looking for the truth. And the truth is more often darker than anybody wants to admit. So I suppose you could fairly say that my view of human nature would be far dimmer than almost, you know, probably 95% of your audience but to put a silver lining on that I, i'm honest about it and i uh, you know call balls or strikes as i see them so 
you tell you what, you ask me that question a week from now, I'll probably give you a different answer, but it won't be an intentional dodge. That's just the way. Well, this is good, man. I I, nobody's ever taken it in that direction, and it seems to fit what we've been talking about all the way through this, which is being who you say you are, uh, having all of these temptations to go down the path, and, and literally every single person that is listening can, can uh, connect with that because hey. like, you, we're all going to hit 100 different choices, yep. but it's good to know that everybody else does too. Vance, hey man, you mentioned Africa. Where, do you mind if I, where, where were you living? What country were I you was in Kenya. Okay, you were in Kenya. The, you, know, you know Richard Burton, the famous African explorer, uh, maybe the greatest of all time, a, a true lunatic. There's a quote from him. I wish I had it in front of me so I could read it properly. But he says in the quote, he says, uh, floating down a river or being in a canoe with an infinitesimal chance of survival. Why do I go on? You know, why do I do what I do? And the end of the quote tells it all. And he said, because the devil drives. Because the devil drives and i always remembered that because it fits richard burton but i also believe it fits the rest of us man the devil drives richard burton i, I love the quote there it is capsule i love it the devil drives <laughs> chris bennett thank you so much for coming on here we will have you on again and again you are a favorite guest of mine hey vance thank you brother y'all have a great day and thank you very much for the privilege